Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Samo Boria. Uh, Samo is the founder of Bismarck Analysis, a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society. He's also a, reach for, a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation, where he studies how institutions can endure for centuries and even millennia. And he's a research fellow at the Foresight Institute, and he's a member of the team at Daniel Schmachtenberger's Consilience Project. I personally subscribe to Bismarck's Brief Services, which each week provides a really well-done analysis of an important institution, industry, or player. Welcome back, Samo. Great to be here with you again. Yeah, this is uh, the sixth of the Jim Rutt Show special episodes about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and this is the second time Samo's been on to talk about this topic. In fact, uh, we chatted last on my podcast on February 28th when things were just getting started, and a lot's changed since then. We actually uh, have a lot more information, uh, though perhaps less information than we think we have. I think that's one of the things we can talk about. What's our epistemology with respect uh, to a conflict like this? Uh, But at least we do have more information than we did then. Uh, You know, I guess I would paraphrase the common view is that uh, Ukrainians have done quite a bit better than maybe we uh, world thought on uh, February 28th, and the Russians have done substantially worse, perhaps, than uh, was thought at that time, but I'd like—I'd love to know what your take on that is. You know, I'm somewhat suspicious of the common consensus, uh, and I know you've looked—you keep an eye on this very carefully. So, where do you think things are now, four weeks plus into the war? I think four weeks into the war, what I'm seeing is a advance or a slow Russian advance, in line with what would be expected from mechanized warfare and the constraints of laying siege to various cities like Mariupol, and I unfortunately expect eventually Kiev. So when it comes again to mobile maneuvers, I think the Russians have uh, captured a whole lot of territory. I think the most actually accurate Western source that I've seen on this is uh, the French Defense Ministry. The French Defense Ministry's uh, maps and reports on this seem to be not in the business of cheerleading, but in the business of reporting uh, on the matter of the war. Um, And I think that, unfortunately, the tragic situation, the tragic scenario is unfolding. What do I mean by the tragic scenario? Um, Territory can be captured, roads can be captured, you know, armored armored units defeated, but I suspect the Russians are just now preparing to slog through several Ukrainian cities and they're going to do so with the method of warfare that was first pioneered in the Chechen war and has been used in many subsequent uh, encounters where you basically just use artillery uh, to level a city and expedite the capture of a city. It's uh, 
could happen. Um, in fact, my one of my previous guests, Tim Clancy, also made that same prediction. He called it the belt strategy, where the Russians will stay back a ways, 15 or 20 kilometers, to make it difficult to counterattack, and will just roll up the heavy artillery and just keep slugging until uh, something happens. I'm going to throw out, though, a possible uh, stopper or restraint that might not make that as feasible as it seems. Clearly, technically, it's feasible. Russia has a tremendous amount of heavy artillery. And that's uh, been you know, Russian doctrine all the way back to World War I and uh, perfected in World War II. But I'm going to throw out a concept which I've been playing with, which I call maximum acceptable atrocity. Uh Putin has to operate under the fact that there is some level of atrocity uh, which will arouse the Western public opinion to the point that it forces the hand uh, of the West to intervene actively. And uh, I don't think he wants that, right? It's particularly with the military perhaps underachieving relative to what was expected uh, to confront the, uh, you know, the first-class air power of the Western powers uh, uh, and maybe some forces on the ground and certainly at sea uh, is not something he's likely to win. Uh, and so if he's a rational actor, which I think he probably mostly still is, he's got to be thinking about what is the maximum acceptable atrocity that he can inflict uh, before uh, public opinion, uh, irrespective of what the politicians might actually want, uh, could force the hand of the West. And of course, to make the game theory interesting and dangerous, Nobody knows what the maximum acceptable atrocities is. So we're sort of playing a you know, double-blind game of Krigspiel here. Uh, what do you think about that as a possible constraint on the pound-it-flat Grozny uh, Aleppo strategy? I think that when it comes to atrocities, right, the question of political interest still is, very, is a very important question. Unfortunately, terrible things happen around the world. Whether or not these things make it to Western audiences is, uh, you know, a decision, almost a decision of the key media organs. It's a decision of Twitter. It's a decision of Facebook. It's a decision of CNN. And to some extent, yes, even Western governments. I think that civilian casualties in particular and the sort of heartbreaking images that uh, you might see from such a siege. I think those are clearly a political liability. So I'm not analyzing it morally, I'm just thinking of it politically. They're a massive political liability, but they do not in themselves, through public opinion, transfer into Western intervention. So it's sort of like if Western governments are decided to intervene, the cost of intervening politically drops if the Russians uh, are forced to bomb these cities out. But if Western governments are not interested in going there, I think all this does is like new rounds of sanctions. And I don't think public opinion really would tip the scales towards an intervention or away from an intervention. I sort of feel that, you know, in particular, the U.S. State Department and the DOD, you know, they're fairly set in their ways. They have uh, some preconceived policies that they want. The public opinion doesn't sway it much one way or the other. I'll give you a counterexample, which was the uh, Kosovo uh, secession from Serbia, uh, where the, our, our government officials said, nope, ain't going to get involved. Nope, don't want to be fighting with those crazy Balkans people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, for their audience's point, uh, Samo is one of those crazy Balkans folks. He's a Slovene. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
And yet, as the mounting atrocities and uh, compared to what's going on in, in Ukraine, uh, less horrifying stuff built up. Uh, there grew to be a strong public and thought leadership call for the West to intervene, and they did. Right, uh, so uh, there's an example where uh, you know the clear, unequivocal statements from the uh, political, uh, diplomatic, and executive branches in, in Congress as well were were actually overwhelmed by the accumulation of evidence. So I'm not so sure that uh, the powers that be can resist uh, you know public opinion when it gets strong enough. Uh, and in some ways, I read the British newspapers uh, to get a, 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 a sense from the other side of the pond. And I got to say, very, very hawkish, much more so than any of the U.S. papers. And frankly, it reminds me a little bit of what I've read about July 1914, right? Uh, when the blood was up, uh, it feels like, particularly in the U.K., the blood is getting up in the populace. And uh, there could be either an accumulation of atrocities or one particularly egregious one that you know might put such pressure on the governments that they they have to reverse their policy just as they did in uh, in Kosovo i think an escalation in the use of novel kinds of weapons so if there was a some sort of use of a chemical biological even nuclear weapons that might be sufficient but i think you know despite everything I don't think bombed out Eastern European cities actually move Western audiences that much. So maybe maybe this is the cynicism here, right? Where, you know, Sarajevo, Sarajevo was pretty much destroyed. And yes, some intervention was triggered by the Yugoslav war. However, the cost benefit analysis there was very different. These were small, you know, weak Balkan countries. And at the end of the day, not, you know, if you judge the standard of intervention in terms of preventing atrocities, well, you know, plenty of atrocities happen in the Balkan Wars anyway. It is true. It is true. But we, time will tell. Uh, another, I would say, uh, counter or part of the conventionalism and somewhat counter to your view is the much talked about uh, reports from the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, they've, uh, laid out unequivocally that the Russian offensive has failed and that uh, uh, the situation is reaching what they call stalemate or culmination, which, you know, the, you know, Clausewitz friction of war essentially led to the point where the Russians can't push much further at the current point in time. Uh, Now, of course, they do point out that that doesn't mean the war is over, that uh, this has been typical of uh, modern war from World War I, World War II, Korea, et cetera, where there's pushes and then uh, friction uh, reaches a point where whoever's pushing can't push any further, lines stabilize for a while, and then either the first pusher pushes again or the other side pushes back. Even in World War II, uh, the uh, horrific warfare on the Eastern Front, which most Americans don't know was, you know, at least 10 times bigger than the fighting on the Eastern Front. I mean, on the Western Front, maybe, and the casualties were 100 times what they were on the Western Front. But uh, the Germans, of course, poured in, made great advances, but they then, uh, through friction and supply lines and weather, uh, eventually culminated in front of Leningrad and Moscow, and then the Russians started pushing them back. Uh, Then in uh, 1942, the Germans thrust forward again, uh, culminating uh, at Stalingrad, where they, uh, where the tide was finally turned. And so uh, the Institute of War uh, claim doesn't mean end of war, it just means 
maybe uh, that this idea that the Russians are going to be able to gradually grind down uh, Kharkiv and uh, uh, Kiev and, and capture Odessa, they don't believe is in the cards in the short term. I think that Odessa probably isn't in the cards in the short term. Um, but I still think that within the next 20 days, we're going to see more territorial gains by Russia in large chunks of eastern Ukraine. And uh, they're going to besiege more than one city and take more than one city. I would agree that looking at this now compared to 30 days ago, I don't think Kiev is going to be captured in the next month. I do suspect, though, that eventually the fighting will reach Kiev. And I do think the fighting won't desist before some important symbolic victory for the Russian side, because that's just necessary for their domestic politics. Yeah, well, to get to that in a minute, what does it take to get this thing settled? But before we go there, uh, let's talk a little bit about the West's uh, intentional and unintentional network response. I mean, this is uh, pretty unprecedented. You know, not only are many, though not all, of the economically important players in the world joining in on uh, more severe sanctions that have ever been inflicted on anybody, I think, except maybe uh, North Korea at the most severe, uh, but even uh, many, many companies that are under no legal obligation to do so are pulling back at some non-trivial economic uh, cost uh, to themselves. Uh, what do you think about, you know, first, the uh, strength of this, uh, and second, its effect? I got to say, I doubt it will it can't really, uh, it's not going to stop the war you know, live. But anyway, give me your thoughts about the the West's surprisingly, seeming to me, uh, coherent and effective and wide-reaching uh, network counterattack. I think one of the you know notable ways to think about this is that this is a new expression of soft power, which has always been understood to be an advantage of Western countries. Uh, compared to some of their strategic rivals. Soft power, however, usually sort of feeds through this kind of like almost back channel, uh, back channel diplomacy, uh, backroom negotiations, where like these decisions are negotiated out and they're reached. In this case, I think what has happened is the intermediation of communication between Western organizations through social media in general but Twitter specifically, have sped up this process intensely. So soft power, yes, perhaps is best thought of as network power. Now, the main difference here is that companies are judging the state of public sentiment, but also the consensus of other Western organizations, not through back channels, but just through the activity on Twitter. Now, the activity on Twitter and I'm focusing on Twitter here because I think it's a disproportionately important social network. I think basically when it comes to the sort of professional white collar class, they are very much the you know heaviest users of this site. I say user, much as you might you know talk about a drug addict. And it in a way, really, they they kind of are addicted to it, right? Like like journalists get their takes from the website. PR people watch the website. Random employees watch the site, and um, it shares these very short, short, you know, information clips. Like someone can scroll through Twitter for several hours and, you know, at the end of the day, they'll be very much plugged in, in into what sort of the media landscape is thinking without needing to even read any New York Times article or watch any clip for CNN or anything like that. 
it's just so well synchronized to this like collective id, this collective unconscious of how how this class of people is feeling. So having said all of this, yes, I think social media specifically has done something remarkable. It's shortened the communication latency between Western organizations. I think any sort of stampede happens much faster, right? Any sort of uh, bull run or bear run is going to happen much faster. So the Western response in terms of uh, organizations uh, initiating their own economic sanctions and so on, I think it was much sharper and faster than it would have been otherwise. The condemnation has been much faster and sharper than it would have been otherwise because you have all of this uh, knowledge. It's not just that I believe something, is that everyone else I see believes something. And then finally, I think this is a vastly more unified media space than it used to be. I think when it comes to this particular class of people, so white collar educated, they all speak English and they all participate on Twitter. It doesn't matter if they're in France, Germany, Britain, the United States, they're participating on the same space. So that would be my key distinction. I wouldn't say it's the public in general. In a way, the public is a construct of the television era. I think sort of the, the white collar bureaucratic class being very active and very addicted to Twitter is the most important part. Yeah, what was the uh, Yugoslavian intellectual used to call it the new class, I think. Uh, right. Yeah, I forget what his name was, Diaz or something like that. Uh, but the uh, yeah, the new class people. Uh, so those that's how the mechanism I would agree that uh, propagated so rapidly and reached consensus way faster than most of the prognosticators thought. Right? You know, for instance, it was thought it was going to be you know probably weeks of negotiation to kick the Russian banks out of SWIFT. It happened in two days. Right? So the, uh, the acceleration of the propagation of a consensus happened faster and probably stronger than anybody, including in the West and in Russia, uh, thought. But what about the the impact uh, at this point? Do you think that the, uh, the cumulative series of governmental and non-governmental uh, actions uh, will, uh, will actually cause serious uh, harm to the Russian economy? I think serious harm to the Russian economy has already happened. It's only a question of how robust the economy is to withstand that damage. And further, how closely coupled, you know, the nominal purpose of these sanctions, right? The nominal purpose is to get Russia and Putin to desist from this invasion when this military operation, right? But really, really, the actual reason underneath it might just be to weaken Russia so that it's less of a threat in the future. And the, the difference between those two might seem subtle, but it's very politically important. The desire is to limit any sort of Russian military potential in the future. And that's in a way a response to current circumstances. And that sort of desire, I think that will be achieved. I think um, to a significant degree, there is going to be an economic cost to Russia that means that this will be just a weaker power in 2030 than it would have been um, were these sanctions not undertaken. In terms of changing the war itself, I don't think it does that much. Again, the politics uh, work out so that Putin is overcommitted to pursuing this war either way. Now, with the structure of the sanctions, I have to point out 
many of these sanctions are sort of symbolic in nature. For example, you might have software companies that make most of their money by servicing existing clients that issue a statement or a sanction saying, oh, we're not going to take any new clients from Russia. Let's say nothing about their existing clients, which is actually most of their revenue stream, right? So a lot of these large companies, when you look at the details, it turns out that uh, about half of these sanctions have teeth, but the other half don't. When I look at these over and over again, about 50% of the companies seem to be uh, undertaking things that are come at great economic cost, not just to Russia, but to the companies themselves. But the other half are just as fiery in their rhetoric, but not as fiery in substance. Yeah, why is that not a surprise? That's human nature. But some of the things though seem quite substantive, like Boeing and Airbus uh, cutting off parts and maintenance of the uh, jet engines. I mean, that's uh, you can't run a uh, airline for very long if you don't have uh, real time supply of uh, of uh, parts and maintenance. So that that one's real, you know, big and big economic dollars as well. So as you say, it's it's a mix. So let's go on to the next uh, point. Uh, as you and I are both uh, students of the history of warfare, uh, we know that relatively few wars end with total victory by one side or the other. You know, the U.S. Civil War was one. The uh, World War II was one. But uh, you know, many of the other, uh, even quite major wars, were settled at some point. So t- in your mind. Uh, what is the context uh, by which we should think about when uh, this Ukraine situation, when or if this Ukraine situation uh, is likely to start to move towards a possible settlement? Right, right. I mean, to me, it seems that I suspect the Russians are going to occupy a substantial chunk of Ukrainian territory and that they will not retreat from this territory. Whether or not this territory de jure changes hands and is just annexed into Russia, that's a separate matter. You could imagine a situation where the Russians insist on the presence of Russian military personnel, even while still acknowledging the territory as part of the Ukrainian government's control. Or uh, the Russians set up more puppet states, as uh, as we've discussed in, in previous episodes, I believe. I think that there's sort of like the question that the future of Ukraine should consider is, can they take the goodwill, but also let's call it arms support from the Western world that's flowing into Ukraine right now? And let's be honest, it's flowing into Ukraine, not because the West loves Ukraine so much, but because they want Russia sort of to pay a cost for the invasion. Can this be made a permanent feature, right? Can this be made permanent? So if you imagine a Ukraine that has lost some of its territory, but continues to receive over the coming years, you know, after the conflict is stabilized with them losing some territory to Russia, especially in eastern Ukraine, them continuing to receive high-tech weapons from the West, you could see a, a, a fairly a fairly secure country develop, possibly a country that, while not in NATO, is very well armed with the best Western systems has a well-trained military, and perhaps even has some avenues of economic growth, perhaps some economic integration with the Western world. Now, I'm calling this both the optimistic scenario, but sort of also the sort of, I think, almost likely scenario. I think there will be some sort of remnant state. And I think if the Ukrainian government continues to be as agile 
and smart when it comes to dealing with Western institutions, they might be able to secure some of this support. And uh, when do you see that there be a settlement, a you know, a negotiated end to the hot war where uh, Ukraine will will? I, I think a sort of a never-ending ceasefire, like a ceasefire where there technically exists a state of war. There's like no big accord signed. It's just a ceasefire. Somehow the ceasefire never goes away. Kind of like the Donbass situation from 2014. From 2014 to today, exactly, yeah. Because in a way, to make it final, to negotiate it, would mean a loss of face for the Ukrainian government. The Ukrainian government has continued, of course, to claim, as it's sort of its old internationally recognized borders, that, you know, Crimea is still Ukraine's territory and that the Donbass and Luhansk are Ukraine's territory. As long as it can preserve these claims, there's no reason not to. It's not completely clear what the Russians could offer for uh, a real peace treaty. Like, I, I think, you know, the Russians would have to pull out of almost every part of Ukraine except Crimea for Ukraine to even recognize Crimea as sort of a, a Russian acquisition. So I don't expect any any peace treaty. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I th- sort of thought of the two powers, uh, it, you know, it depends where things really are, right? If you, you, know, if you believe the... Uh, the stalemate strategy, not only a stalemate strategy, but some signs of the uh, Ukrainians rolling Russians back, at least in limited places. Uh, and the fact that it certainly appears that uh, the Ukrainians, perhaps contrary to what we were th- chatting about four weeks ago, are now unified as a nation such that an insurgency is likely on any territories, at least out of the, other than the Far East, uh, that Russia holds. Uh, you know, Ukraine could just keep hot war going until they run, you know, grind the Russians down. That's that was that's the other side of it. And Zelensky thinks that's possible. He may not even go for a, an armistice. He may just uh, keep the Russians in the I call it the quicksand pool until they either sink or leave. Uh, that's uh, that's the alternative if you uh, you know accept a view that things are actually going relatively well for the Ukrainians. No, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, perhaps the correct way to think about this, this war has always been that this is sort of, uh, you know, the, the Soviet civil war that didn't happen in 1989, right? Ukraine is a relatively large country. Russia is a obviously huge country. Ukraine has pretty, a pretty dense population, a significant population. Um, you know, depending on, on how exactly you counted it might be something like 35 million people in the country currently. I think, though, that the fact that the Russians are holding territory and gaining territory in the South and East, um, that shouldn't be understated. So currently, I think it looks like a, uh, a, a moderate Ukrainian defeat. Okay, interesting. Now, let's assume that Zelensky actually believes what he says and uh, is not ready to settle, maybe not even at the armistice level, uh, unless the Russians uh, pull completely out with the possible exception of uh, Crimea. In fact, I'll insert here the rut view of the right answer, right? This should be the solution both sides would accept, but currently they're not willing to probably, which is the uh, uh, Crimea goes to Russia uh, the Dunbans provinces stay with Ukraine, but get very substantial autonomy within Ukraine. And Ukraine agrees not to join NATO for 15 or 20 years. That should be a, uh, a deal that would clear the markets. 
but neither side seems to me yet ready to get to that point. I think that, you know, one of the points I want to just, just underscore is the similarity of Russia and Ukraine's forces, right? The common military tradition, common culture, honestly, the institutional differences between the two countries at the military level are, are not that huge either. Um, this, this common history goes back a long ways. And if the war is reduced to, to who has more material, that's definitely the Russians. And then the Ukrainians can keep on fighting as long as the West resupplies them. How long does the West continue to resupply Ukraine is a different calculus than what is acceptable or not to Zelensky. There's overlap right now, but will there be overlap six months from now? Unclear. Interesting. So let's assume we're in a position where the market is not yet ready to clear. Zelensky is here and uh, Putin is there. I'm holding my fists up, you know, six inches apart. One of the things that uh, happens in these kinds of conflicts is things change, right? War is, if nothing else, uh, a, a compendium of the unexpected. Uh, and so I'm going to run through some things that could happen uh, that could move both sides' views of their prospects. Because I think about you know, negotiation and war very much like the way a, a labor strike gets settled, right? Uh, which is initially both sides have very ambitious goals. We're going to get 10 extra dollars an hour, labor thinks. We're going to give them a 1% pay raise and cut their uh, vacation by a week. Uh, that's what management thinks. And then they both start inflicting pain on each other. The factory closes, the workers don't get their paychecks. Uh, but then there becomes a point where both sides realize that both sides can inflict and absorb pain. That's important. And both sides so far have shown they can uh, inflict and absorb pain. And then here's the other key po point when the labor uh, situations settle is when both sides realize their maximalist uh, plan is not going to work. Uh, you know, the, the the workers realize they're never going to get $10 an hour and the uh, ma management uh, realizes the workers will never accept a 1% raise. When those two things happen, that's when a settlement can happen. Uh, and there sometimes has to be facts on the ground to demonstrate that. So anyway, I'm thinking that uh, some of the possible new events that could happen over the, uh, the next uh, few months that could change the position and either bring the two together to a settlement occurs or push them apart are things like maybe the Russians uh, can reinvigorate their, uh, their mobile offensive uh, and uh, take uh, Dnipro, which uh, is a place on the, the Dnipro River, that if you take it from the north and the south, you cut off all those forces in front of Donbass. Uh, that could change the situation a fair bit. I went back and looked at the history. In World War II, the Germans blitzkrieged around Kiev and caught and captured 600,000 uh, Russian uh, units in, in Kiev. But it took six or eight weeks to reduce uh, that force, even after it had been surrounded. So it, even if the Russians take Dnipro, it would still take a couple of months to uh, capture the forces. It, it would be it would be a slow a slow slog, yes. Yeah, very slow slog. And at least so far, the Russians have not shown the ability to do the American-style land-air thing where you can blitzkrieg through. I mean, it's, you know, they just have to muscle their way through. So even getting to Dnipro, which isn't that far from the current uh, leading parts of the northeast thrust and the southern thrust, uh, could take quite a while. Uh, next one, and you know, again, there's reports, God knows how much of it's propaganda, probably some of it, that uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian counterattacks are starting to occur. And you know, there was a claim that they recaptured a, a town 
outside of Kiev. And then there was uh, uh, local counterattacks in the south and even some speculation that the Ukrainians uh, might have within their power. Uh, what's the town? Kison, Kason, Kherson, um, the big city, the one big city that's fallen so far uh, to the Russians. Uh, possibly the Ukrainians could counterattack and take that back. Uh, if the Ukrainians were able to actually start rolling the Russians back uh, on multiple fronts, that would change the situation on the ground. It might change both sides' perspective. That would probably increase Zelensky's goals. No Crimea for the Russians. Uh, and, but it might uh, make Putin more realistic. Yeah, the, the possibility of a Ukrainian push back against Russia, if organized, right, if organized, this is sort of the kind of, uh, you know, this is sort of, uh, if that were to happen, this is the kind of historical event that sort of uh, creates and defines a new nation, right? It's the equivalent of the Seven Days War, for example. Uh, this would be sort of Ukraine's new founding myth. And I suspect would actually result in a bunch of state capacity and a bunch of economic and other development in the coming decades. The effects of these things are always very indirect, um, but very, very powerful. So I think sort of if Ukraine's new founding myth was the Russians invaded and we pushed them back, this means that sort of a whole new type of patriotism becomes viable and there is space and room for ambition within Ukraine. It means you don't have to leave Ukraine for the United States or Germany to make your mark. It means you can make your mark right then and there. So on Putin's end, though, if that were to happen, things become very unclear. In particular, I think a whole bunch of um, secessionist efforts within the Russian Federation restart. I think we would see a destabilization of the Russian Federation. I still think we would not see Putin leave power, but uh, they would they would start to be uh, a flare-up of new wars, probably in the coming years and decades in the Chet in you know first off Chechnya itself, but the Caucasus region in general. And these efforts would then be supported, maybe even armed, by an invigorated Ukraine. Interesting. Another, another possibility, Zelensky could get captured or killed. It could be an intelligence failure that allows uh, a cruise missile to take him out or a uh, commando team to grab him. Uh, that's, again, one of these uh, you know, unexpected but not by any means impossible events that could, uh, that could change the dynamic. I think killing Zelensky would not help Russia domestically. It would, however, shake Ukraine and the Ukrainian government. And while it would produce an outpouring of sympathy, possibly even um, you know, an elevation to martyrdom in the Western world, it would also cause the West to quietly stop backing the country. So much of Ukraine's response has been embodied in Zelensky and his PR image, right? His, uh, his uh, you know, uh, the sort of image that's now even been imitated by Macron, right? With Macron showing up in, in hoodies and pseudo combat yeah. gear in the LSE palace for photos. That was embarrassing as shit. That was terrible, but it just didn't work very well. But the fact that he tried it, right? That shows you how powerful this image is. So if you put a war effort not in the broad population as a whole, but in a single figure, and then this figure is uh, killed, then 
the war effort is perceived to have failed, even if you say good things about it. So I think you would see like suddenly a lot of Western support would go slap, you know, would, would, would go limp. It would sort of go, um, it would be, so, it would become softer, less reliable, um, indirect. It would cease to be a political asset for any organization to back Ukraine. Yeah, so that, you know, if, if Russia were thinking network war, that would be a significant move by them. It's not clear. It's not clear whether they are, though. Yeah, we'll talk about that soon, how inept they've been at it. They're, you know, this alleged monster of uh, psychops is even uh, very incompetent in many ways. Uh, another possibility, uh, you know, this is one you know, I would pull out of my playbook, I would at least consider, is uh, get the Belarusians with some Russian support to come down uh, the Ukraine-Polish border and cut off the supply lines from Poland. I expect at this point there aren't very many Ukrainian uh, reserves out west to stop such a thrust. Uh, that would be a, another, you know, sort of somewhat unexpected but possible play that could change the negotiating dynamics. I think that move would be perhaps beyond the capacities of the Belarusian military. We, in fact, don't know that much about how prepared Belarus has been, sorry, how prepared Belarus has been uh, for this war, assuming they've been very well prepared and that they would have been coordinating with the Russian government from the start. That's definitely possible. I think their success is less guaranteed. I've seen, you know, I see some reasons and some evidence for institutional reform within the Russian military. Maybe this reform was insufficient. Maybe they still end up stalling. I don't see a lot of evidence in the Belarus military. So I actually think the Belarus military would, would underperform in such an operation. Interesting. Okay. Uh, now let's skip ahead. We'll come back to a couple of other topics. Uh, we alluded to this, which is uh, if you were playing 5G, 5Gen war and thinking about war as a network phenomena, taking out Zelensky seems like a good play because it undermines uh, the enthusiasm uh, in the West and this you know, buzzing uh, uh, culture thing that has been an important part of keeping the governments focused and committed to providing uh, the most sophisticated arms they can figure out how to deploy into Ukraine. But they, they, it's not clear at all the Russians are actually realizing they're in a fifth-gen war. Uh, you know, they're not even dealing with the physical network. Uh, I, I was amazed last week when the uh, three uh, prime ministers of, uh, was it Poland, uh, Czech Republic and uh, one other uh, country, I don't remember what it was, three of them, came across by train uh, to Kiev all the way. Uh, if, uh, if it was the U.S. fighting Ukraine, they would have dropped every bridge within 250 miles of Kiev on day two. Uh, that the Russians uh, haven't ma made that obvious move, uh, it just seems like they're not thinking in network terms. You know, the Internet's still up. Electricity is still up. You know, it's, uh, and let alone the psychops, you know, the uh, uh, the psychological warfare of, uh, of news and manipulation there. You know, the Russians are utterly been outplayed by the Ukrainians, at least in the West. Apparently, it's not less the case in uh, China and Africa and India. But at least in the West, uh, the supposed great uh, uh, manipulator of public opinion uh, hasn't shown its hand at all. It's completely uh, ham handed uh, when they've tried to uh, try to do anything. Uh, do you have any idea? I mean, are the Russians just clueless of the fact that we're in a 5G war or are they just really bad at it? Perhaps the claims of Russian misinformation were always to some extent misinformation. 
I think the Russians are not that good at manipulating Western public opinion. I think their talent at this has been greatly overstated uh, in the last decade. Um, and we could, we could talk about why, but that seems almost a different topic. With regard to Ukraine itself, you know, I, I think their, their initial goal was to keep the infrastructure running because they intended to use the infrastructure. Maybe that will prove to have been too optimistic um, but I think that was their thinking. Destroying bridges, roads, they might intend to be crossing those roads and bridges in the not-too-distant future. It could be. That's not how the U.S. would have done it. But to your point, we have a different doctrine and we're equipped in a different way than they are. I mean, we, you know, uh, even against uh, Serbia, we blew up their power plants, dropped their bridges, uh, you know, boom, boom, boom. And they surrendered without even fighting on the ground. So let's now go back to the a really big picture uh, that you know is actually transcends this particular conflict and maybe an evolution of warfare. Uh, you know, in the history of warfare, at various times the uh, tactical offense and the tactical defense have changed in relative power. You know, a couple of famous examples were between the Napoleonic Wars and the U.S. Civil War. Uh, the invention of the mini ball and the rifled uh, muzzle loader basically tripled the effective range of the small arms and made the Napoleonic charge uh, almost uh, certain to fail. Uh, and all the West Pointers have unfortunately been uh, trained on Yamini's uh, uh, texts about the uh, uh, Napoleonic War. Clausewitz had not been translated into English yet. That's an interesting little footnote of history. Uh, and so the, you know, the Civil War generals were still doing those frontal charges, uh, and they almost always failed, uh, unlike in Napoleonic times when more often than not they succeeded. And of course, the perhaps more famous example was the epoch between the Franco-Prussian War and World War II, the development of the machine gun, I mean, World War I, the Franco-Prussian War, World War I, uh, Franco-Prussian War, Germans came in pretty quick, uh, World War One, uh, machine guns plus barbed wire plus uh, rapid fire field artillery uh, led to stasis, uh, at least uh, in, on the Western Front. Uh, and then in World War II, air power plus radio plus tanks uh, changed it back to a offensive-dominated uh, uh, epoch. Could it be that smart anti-asset weapons, anti-tank, anti-air that are inexpensive – uh, but now, because they're fire and forget in, at their highest level, uh, make the exchange ratio between in, relatively inexpensive man-portable and or uh, truck-portable uh, smart missiles versus very expensive assets like airplanes, helicopters, tanks, and ships uh, have switched the uh, dynamic back to where defense may now be uh, dominant at least tactically, over offense. What's your thoughts about that as a possibility? I think that the balance between offense and defense is a tricky one. Um, for the purposes of mechanized warfare, I think perhaps, yes, that defense is stronger than it was. For the purposes of, say, the air supremacy strategy that the United States employs, it's not clear that that's uh, changed at all. So depend on what, what type of warfare you pursue. 
Yeah, and that's going to be my next point, which is to the degree that it may be true in the context uh, of Ukraine, could that be just the matchup between the two militaries? Like in sports, you, you say that two soccer teams, football teams, uh, what are their strengths and weaknesses? How do they match up? In this case, uh, you know, uh, the uh, matchup between Ukraine and Russia is such that uh, the defense is stronger than people thought, perhaps, and the and, offense and, is weaker. And not just that, the forces are surprisingly symmetrical. Right. These are these are almost, um, you know, these are armed forces that come out of a common military tradition. On the other hand, it is true that there's been uh, since uh, 2014, a lot of training of the um, uh, Ukraine uh, forces in light infantry tactics. That's what the U.S. uh, has been sending a number of experts, including uh, special forces. The Canadians have been as well. And and they came up with the strategy. Hey, you guys ain't going to make it in, uh, you know, tank battles in wheat fields. But uh, light infantry tactics with these smart weapons uh, could be surprisingly effective and may help, uh, you know, break the, uh, you know, the, the pure weight of number advantages that uh, Russians would have. Uh, and so that may also be part of it. It could be doctrine plus weapons that are produced, this, at least in this matchup. So let's assume the Russians are underachieving uh, relative to uh, what people expected. Uh, I, I think that's true. I mean, uh, you know, again, is it all propaganda? Did did Putin never believe it could be over in three days? I don't know. Uh, but let's assume that is true and the uh, Russian military is underperforming. Well, what might be the causes? Doctrine, readiness, equipment, corruption, nepotism, all the above. I basically think that the crucial problems of Ukraine's military and Russia's military. Um, Again, I do do think that there are some similarities between them. And the similarities are the difficulty of getting an organized response to carry through all the levels needed to engage in mechanized warfare well. So in other words, if you get 90% of your institutional reforms right, you put in this military together and it's 90% right, it's not going to be 90% as effective as if you got it perfectly right. It's going to be maybe 10, 20% as effective. So in other words, I think the Russians, if they're failing, might be debugging sort of one, two, three problems left with the military. If they carry out those relevant reforms, their performance in future wars dangerously might exceed their performance in this one. It's common in history to start wars with a situation that's an unmitigated disaster, even though on paper, it really shouldn't have been an unmitigated disaster. And over time, the more competent people are promoted up the chain of command, changes are made to the course of a war, and the you know battle-hardened army has in a way been debugged of all of these problems. It went from 90% ready to 100% ready. And maybe those last 10% or those last 20% can only be crossed with large-scale military experience. Yeah, the American Civil War is a perfect example of that, where uh, to everybody's surprise, the Confederates booted the Union right back out again. Uh, and only after a period of uh, three years did the uh, Union finally realize, uh, find the right leaders and find the right tactics and realize that they were basically unbeatable uh, if they if they just didn't just a- applied a brute force strategy and won. So it may be uh, that 
it will, that the Russians will improve. On the other hand, I would point out that the read some of the, the rate at which material and men are dying and uh, weapons are being uh, consumed, something like half the Russian total inventory of cruise missiles has been used up already. The pace of current uh, high energy kinetic warfare doesn't give you uh, years to improve, right? You know, you know, and when you change leaders, you can't assess whether the new leader is better than the old leader until a significant period of time has gone by. So you can't spend three years to find your Ulysses S. Grant uh, the way Lincoln did in a high, you know, a very high energy kinetic situation such as modern all-on warfare. Perhaps though, the supply chain issues uh, for this, uh, you know, very high-tech weaponry are not just going to be found on the Russian side, but also on the Ukrainian side. I do want to point out European militaries are extremely limited in the amount of supplies they can give to Ukraine. Those armies have been sort of uh, almost starved in the case of the German uh, military of funding and stockpiles of advanced equipment. The United States, of course, is different. And it might be the case that the United States at great expense just continually resupplies uh, Ukraine. However, if you have a situation where both sides have run out of the cutting edge stuff, the cutting edge munitions, you revert to a simpler kind of warfare out of necessity. And that might still take years. And that would still, and that would probably favor the Russians. Probably favor the Russians. Though again, a mere military victory doesn't mean there's a strategic win. Got it. Uh, all right. Now let's, let's back up all the way to the top. What have you seen so far from this conflict in, in looking at in the five uh, gen sense, including the network response, et cetera, uh, uh, with respect to future implications uh, with respect to uh, international relations and conflict uh, more generally uh, going on? So I guess in short form, in business speak, what are the lessons learned so far that are applicable to the future? I think the the first the first uh, you know the first lesson is that big wars still happen. I think almost no one was expecting this. Possibly not even the Ukrainians themselves. There was talk about an invasion for a few months before uh, a military operation a few months before, um, but really over the course of the last few years and decades, we've always assumed that wars would be small affairs. The war in Ukraine is a large war. Right. And a world where large wars matter, where middle powers such as Russia, so not just the hegemon, not just the United States, and you know, which is still the world's premier superpower, but these other powerful states, they might pursue large wars. That suggests a very different world than the one we've been used to since the 1990s. That would be unfortunate. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons people are so disturbed by this is that uh, Putin has broken the taboo against uh, attacking a neighbor to try to absorb them that had so played their, their territory. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, that, you know, that was U- European history for a very long time. That's all they did. Attack each other, try to grab uh, territory. But that had been taboo since uh, 1945. And if we're going to return to that world, that's not good. Well, it wouldn't be the last border that people would, you know, it wouldn't be the last border countries would attempt to revise through military means. That's uh, true enough. Uh, what about, uh, now I'm going to throw back on a, a somewhat more positive vein. I've been thinking that the 
if it turns out to actually be able to put a serious hurt on Russia, this network economic response may turn out to be the uh, collective deterrence of war we've been looking for since 1918. Uh, you know, we tried the, uh, the League of Nations, didn't work. We tried the United Nations, didn't really work. Uh, the thing that worked in the Cold War was the fortuitous mutual assured destruction. Uh, and uh, maybe if these network effects are strong enough in an interconnected world, uh, this could be uh, inexpensive enough and effective enough and not dangerous uh, such that uh, the penalties, the costs for waging aggressive war are so severe that even if it doesn't stop Russia in its current hot war, if the aftermath effects are so large, uh, it could act as a deterrent, uh, finally, an effective deterrent to aggressive warfare going forward. I think the sufficiently a sufficiently high cost to war might deter Russia specifically. I suspect, though, that if territorial gains are made, other countries might just take this as a challenge to learn how to just fight these wars better, because the proof is that uh, you can gain territories and resolve political disputes. And then just it's a matter of minimizing the cost, finding the right moment. And perhaps designing your economy to make it uh, more robust against the uh, economic network attack, right? Well, that'll bring us to our last question on this will exit. And you can guess what it is uh, with this setup, which is, all right, what does China make of all this? China will perceive the strong benefit of disentangling from Western economies from its end because of the political freedom that, uh, you know, this economic disentanglement allows it. Like when I talk here about political freedom, I mean political freedom of action. I don't mean the freedom of the citizens. To resolve the Taiwan question, they might come to the conclusion that what they have to do is actually deglobalize. And that would be such a multi-decade spanning policy, right? That would be a policy where they attempt these new partnerships directly bypassing global institutions with uh, African and Asian countries, and of course, Russia, to provide China with the raw resources and markets it needs to sustain its industrial base. And yes, Taiwan, you know, it might sound silly to propose that China would build a global neocolonial empire just to have the political freedom to retake Taiwan, or sorry, the political, uh, you know, power or the political ability to retake Taiwan. But really, it's that domestically important. It's sort of a basic plank of the legitimacy of the Communist Party, uh, you know, to conquer a third of the world, right, or to uh, put a third of the world in your sphere of influence to capture a small stubborn island. That's happened before, you know. <laughs> Those kinds of political paradoxes are, are common to human history. Interesting. Though I must say, I'm feeling a little bit better about our bet. Uh, where, of course, I, it probably won't. It'll probably be a no bet because I think was, the bet was conditioned on a Russian decisive victory in Ukraine. Could still happen. Uh, which, which uh, Samo said, well, if the Russians win a decisive victory in Ukraine within three years, China will attack uh, Taiwan. My sense is that the takeaway for China would be uh, no, probably don't want to attack Taiwan in the next three years. I, I would find your strategy that, all right, let's develop a worldwide trade network that's disconnected from the Westerners so they can't whack us with the network effect uh, and maybe go for Taiwan in 20 years if it doesn't just fall into our lap, which it might. Uh, so I'm, look, I'm looking good. I'm looking for that slip of its uh, <laughs> come my way here. Uh, uh, so I think uh, that's 
maybe, maybe we're now more closer on the same page on what uh, what China might uh, take away from uh, from this conflict so far. Well, as always, Samo, just the greatest conversation, great deep thinking. Uh, you know, and I, I love the fact that you don't feel compelled to follow the conventional wisdom. I mean, that's that's what we need when we're trying to make sense of the world. Thank you for having me on the show again. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.